0: So, g'day, my name's Daniel, I'm one of the student ministers here. We're continuing our sermon series uh, through the book of Daniel, which is in the Old Testament. If you'd like one of these booklets, feel free to put up your hand and someone might bring you one. There we go, boom. You know where they are, Jack? Awesome. Uh, So, in those books uh, is a bit of information on Daniel, about the themes of Daniel. Uh, If you want, you can write sermon notes in there if you're that way inclined. Because the passage tonight, Daniel 2, is quite long, I'm going to summarize the first part. I'm going to pray, summarize the first part, and then we're going to have our Bible reading. So uh, please join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, it is good to come before you. Uh, We thank you so much that you genuinely love us because you are a good, good Father. We thank you that you are present with us here today. And we ask that you will help us hear what you're wanting to teach us. Please help me communicate clearly, Lord. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, Amen. Alright, so in, in Daniel 2, we see King Nebuchadnezzar. He's the most powerful man in all the earth. But he has come undone because he's had a small dream. A dream that he cannot understand. He's anxious to understand it. He's troubled by it so that sleep is deserting him. He calls together his many spiritual advisors and asks them to interpret it. And he says, but if you can't interpret it, I'm going to kill you all. I'm going to get your homes and reduce them to rubble. But if you do interpret it, oh, you'll get riches and you'll get glory. But they were men. They couldn't divine Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And in trying to buy more time, uh, their erratic, powerful king, he went mad. They said to him, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing. It's too difficult. Only the gods whose dwelling isn't with mortals can do what the king asks. And so it seems that their fate is sealed. The king, in his anger, orders every wise man in Babylon to be executed. And as the king's executioner is coming to Daniel's door, Daniel comes and meets him and with tact and discretion figures out the situation and then goes to the king and buys a bit more time. With the threat of execution looming and with a bit of time up his sleeve, uh, this is how how Daniel responds. We're going to have our Bible reading. Thanks, Lyndon.
1: So the reading is Daniel chapter 2, starting at verse 17. And that's found on page 813 of your church Bibles. Then Daniel went to his house and told his friends Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah about the matter, urging them to ask the God of heaven for mercy concerning this mystery, So Daniel and his friends would not be killed with the rest of Babylon's wise men. The mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night and Daniel praised the God of heaven and declared, may the name of God be praised forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my fathers, because you have given me wisdom and power. And now you have let me know what we asked of you, for you have let us know the king's mystery. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had assigned to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He came and said to him, Don't kill the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king, and I will give him the interpretation. Then Ariok quickly brought Daniel before the king and said to him, I have found a man among the Judean exiles who can let the king know the interpretation. The king said in reply to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me the dream I had and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king, No wise man, medium, diviner priest or astrologer is able to make known to the king the mystery he asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days your dream and the visions that came into your mind as you lay in bed were these. Your Majesty, while you were in your bed, thoughts came to your mind about what will happen in the future. The revealer of mysteries has let you know what will happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. This is the word of the Lord.
0: When threat is looming, how do you respond? Uh, when, when a deadline is rapidly approaching and your, de- and your boss is at your desk again, uh, when, when you have to have a hard conversation, when for another night... You're staring at the roof, losing sleep because you're worried about the future. How do you respond? How do you move forward? Do you operate with wisdom? Throughout this passage this evening, we're going to see the trait of wisdom, godly wisdom, pop up again and again. And I'll be honest, when I first looked at this passage, I thought it was all about uh, power and authority. And I was really excited to preach on it. I was like, yes, that's what I can get keen about. But as I looked at it more and see, and saw wisdom popping up again and again, I was a bit disappointed. I didn't want to preach on wisdom. I thought wisdom's boring. I thought it wasn't that interesting. And to be honest, I've really had to repent of that because this week as I've looked at it more, I've seen the richness of wisdom. How is it rich? My, Brian said, my friend Brian said it well. He said, uh, godly wisdom is rich because it's true, because it's just. It teaches us about God and it teaches us to love what is righteous. Wisdom is better. 1 Corinthians 125 says God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. God's wisdom is better. God does nothing without wisdom. It's intensely practical, it's real world. It can help us to respond wisely. When hard things arise, godly wisdom is a beautiful thing. In this passage tonight, I want us to see three things about godly wisdom. The first thing is that godly wisdom leads to humility. Godly wisdom leads to humility. In this passage, there's a lot of comparing going on. There's Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel being compared, and then Daniel and the wise men. One really clear thing is in response to the persistent unknown. Nebuchadnezzar threatens. He sets deadlines. He flexes his kingly muscle. But Daniel, Daniel responds with humble prayer. He goes to his house. He urges his friends to pray and then he goes to the Lord. We saw last week in Daniel 1 that he'd had some success. Daniel had had. Uh, figured out in some ways how to deal with this eccentric king. But what he did here is he didn't sort of rely on his own successes. He went to the Lord again. He rested in the Lord. He was wise by going to the Lord. Like a muscle, he's putting wisdom to work again and again. He's strengthening that. And he honors the Lord. We see in verse 17 and 18 how he responds. Daniel went to his house and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter, urging them to ask the God of heaven for mercy concerning this mystery. Daniel, in his humility, gets others on board to pray with him. And I think we can really learn a lot from this, because in our individualistic society, I know for me anyway, we want to do it ourselves. When issues arise, I have two different ways that I tend to respond Uh, One is to go it alone, is to not pray, is to rely on my past experience and and skills and personality to try to just do it myself. Sometimes I say or or think, God, you you don't need to know about this little thing. I don't need to take it to you in prayer. But that's a lie. He wants you to take everything to him because he's a good God. He hears our prayers. The other thing I tend to do, is I might take my prayers to God when I have an issue, but I don't take it to my Christian brothers and sisters. I sort of have this double standard. I I love to hear other people's prayer points. I love to pray for them, but I don't want to tell them my prayer points. I don't want to show them weakness. I wonder if you're like me. You need to humble yourself. Go to the Lord and pray, and ask your brothers and sisters to pray with you. It's a good thing. My father tells a story from time to time. In the early 90s, mum and and dad lived on a ship uh, called the MV Doulos. It went around Southeast Asia uh, and it told people about Jesus pretty much. It was quite, oh, not super large ship. It was maybe like two manly ferries long, so a bit of size. Uh, And they used to go into smaller ports where there was no tugboats or anything. Tugboats would sort of guide you in the last bit. Uh, And they went into this one port, uh, and there was a breeze. And the breeze was blowing the ship away from the port uh, into some rocks on the other side. Uh, And Dad knew, as a good marine engineer, he was just waiting on the call from the captain. He would reverse thrusters, out they go. I don't think they're called thrusters, but out they go. And then they'll put down anchor, wait for the wind to stop, and then give it another crack. And then over the PA, or the radio, uh, comes a call from the captain Can everybody on the ship stop what they're doing uh, and pray uh, that God will change the direction of the wind? And Dad heard this and he thought, come on, guys. Like, do we really have to do this? Can't we just, like, do it the way we've always done it? But no, he, he stopped and everybody else stopped and they prayed. And the wind stopped and it changed direction. Nice and gently just blew them into the port. Uh, the, the captain and the crew, they could have relied on their extensive experience. They could have taken control, not relying on God. But instead, they stopped and prayed. They expected God to work. They expected that he would listen and that he would do a good thing because he cares, because he does do good things. They humbly prayed, waiting for the Lord to work. The final way that we see Daniel's godly wisdom leading to humility is that it was others-centered. I used to have an idea in my head that humility was thinking of myself less. I used to think, oh, if I rip on myself enough, it means I'm really humble. Check out how much I rip on myself. But that's not what it is. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's taking others' interests into account. And at the end of verse 18, we see Daniel doing this. It says he was praying so that his friends would not be killed with the rest of Babylon's wise men. A bit of context, Um, Daniel and his friends were Israelites, but they were no longer in Israel. They had been attacked by this mega nation of of Babylon, of which King Nebuchadnezzar was the head. Uh, And now they were over there and they they were under their dominion. They were under Babylon's dominion, and Daniel here is praying for the good of those who'd gone to his homeland, killed his friends, pillaged his people. How phenomenal is that? Daniel was looking toward the good of others. Now, maybe we don't have enemies like that. I I hope you don't, for your sake. But we do have people in our lives who bring hardship, bring frustration, bring sleepless nights. And the challenge is here. The challenge is that we need to pray for them. Are you praying for their good? Are you praying that they will know Jesus? Are you praying for your relationship? such a hard thing to do when they drive you up the wall. But that's the challenge. Take it to the Lord for his good. He will hear you. He does that. It's awesome. So that's our first point. Godly wisdom leads to humility. Uh, Our second point is that godly wisdom results in praise. Uh, In verse 19, God reveals the mystery. And then we have this beautiful poem. Look at it with me, verse 20. And he declared, "...may the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and he establishes kings." He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. What rich words. Somehow this dream showed Daniel that that not Nebuchadnezzar, but God is king. That not Nebuchadnezzar, but God is, is ever present. Daniel was under this threat. This foreign dominion, but he saw that God's dominion is so much greater. Such rich words. Can I encourage you? This is what I want to do this week. Is, is you know those gobstoppers that we used to maybe get when you were young? How they have all the layers? Like, like a gobstopper, dwell and and and, and rest uh, on this, on these verses. Pop it in your mouth and, and get the different layers of it. Just spend time in those verses. See God in them. They're so good. It's so good to see that God is above all, above all relationships, above all hardships. He's above them all, and yet He cares for us through them all. So we know we know that this dream somehow uh, resulted in God uh, resulted in Daniel uh, in in being humble, uh, and also praising God. So let's have a look at the dream. I'm going to try to summarise it um, so then we can uh, get along. Um, So the dream from verse 31 is that as Nebuchadnezzar was watching, a colossal statue appeared before him. It was dazzling. It was terrifying. It was made up of impressive, powerful components. It had a, a head of gold, uh, a chest and arms of silver, a stomach of thighs and, and bronze, legs of iron, and a feet, a mixture of clay and iron. And then a stone broke off, broke off from a mountain, and it struck the statue in its feet, in its weak point. And it shattered the feet, and it caused the rest of the statue to shatter as well, into dust, blown away with the wind, never to be seen again. And then that small stone grew and grew and grew to be a great mountain that filled all of the earth. Daniel then goes on to interpret the dream. He says that Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, in his great might as a king, he was the head of gold. And the other parts of the statue were different kings or different kingdoms that were to come after Nebuchadnezzar. Some were to be inferior, Uh, Some were to be strong and mighty, and they would shatter. And then look at me with verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. This kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. Interesting dream, right? I wonder if you've ever had a dream like that. I'm thankful I haven't. This colossal statue, tall and dazzling, terrifying in appearance. I don't know about you, but when I read things like this, I want to know what they mean, right? So this week, I was like, all right, in preparation for the sermon, I'm going to find out what this dream means. So I read a book, and they had about five theories, and then I read another book. They had like another two or three theories, So it's not clear. that There's some ideas is that um, the different parts might represent different empires that come after Nebuchadnezzar. So maybe the Assyrian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire. Some people say it's different um, descendants of Nebuchadnezzar that are to come are the different parts of the statue. It's not clear. But one hint um, that I've heard recently when we come to imagery, and this will help us throughout Daniel, when we're reading the Bible is not to get bogged down in the details. It's, if it's not clear, that's okay. It's imagery, but it's imagery with a purpose. So what we want to do when we're reading it is to really zoom out, is to think, all right, what is the author trying to make me feel? What are they trying to tell me here? What, what is clear? And then focus in on that. So what is clear is that it tells us. It tells us that Nebuchadnezzar is the head, the kingdoms or the other parts are kings or kingdoms, not clear Uh, and then the rock will shatter them all and then grow into a mighty kingdom that will be everlasting and everlasting this humble stone will become a great mountain for Daniel it told him instead of looking around at the powerful kingdoms that were close instead of feeling the immediate threat of Nebuchadnezzar he was told to lift his eyes to the king his true king that despite all appearances was still in control To see his king and his God that had great wisdom, that knew the future, that was in control of history. To rest on him, to lift his eyes to him. And that's our third point tonight. Godly wisdom lifts our eyes to the Lord. In lifting our eyes to the Lord, we gain uh, clearer perspective, more eternal perspective. It reminds us when we lift our eyes to him that he is in control. The current threats aren't all. God is there. And I think, as I read this and I hear about wisdom, I think, okay, godly wisdom compels, but I also think that lifting our eyes to the Lord can lead to more wisdom. Uh, the, The Bible says in Proverbs that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That's how you get more wisdom. Fear God. Fear Him first and foremost. Fear here is like like reverence, like awe. Craig Bartholomew says, uh, To fear God is to sense His power and His holiness, yet at the same time embrace Him in love and obedience. To know that God in His power could destroy everything, yet with His power... He chose to love us and save us. That's what it is to fear God. Fear Him because He has power to save you, because He loves you. What an incredible God we have. One thing that I think is incredible is that although He's so powerful, He decided to use that humble stone. I want to tell you a story. Uh, When I was studying engineering in Brisbane, uh, there was a scout hall in a local park, uh, and someone had come along and said, you know what, I'm going to turn this into a powerlifting gym. So every time you'd walk past it, the whole, the whole place would be shaking as these massive units would lift and lift and, lift and it, was, it was great. Anyway, so I went and joined, right, because who doesn't want to lift heavy things, and, and I went along. And I found out after some time, if if someone new came in, you'd try to help them out, right? Even if you had some limited experience, tell them what you thought was helpful. Uh, So a small uh, Asian fellow came in one day. His name was Frank. And I thought, you know what? I've been here a month. I know a fair bit, right? I'll show him the ropes. Uh, And he said, I want to do powerlifting. I said, good. He said, I want to do some deadlifts, which is where you like pick the weight up off the ground, drop it again or put it down again. And I said, hey, I can show you how to do that. Um, And just as I was about to show him, uh, little Frank uh, goes over to to the biggest man in the gym uh, and says, excuse me, could you just uh, leave those weights on the ground, that 220 kilogram weight that you're lifting. I was looking at Frank and I was like, you know what, I better keep my mouth shut for a little bit. Um, And then Frank very calmly uh, goes and lifts it like three times, right? It was a unit. He He was a little unit, but he lifted big weights, Right. Uh, I found out that in, in my eyes, in comparison to all the really big men around him, he didn't seem capable, right? He seemed small. Uh, but in fact, he was really powerful. He was a, I think he's like the best in the world. He's an international powerlifting champion. Um, so that was, that was pretty embarrassing. But, but the message of the story is that... that, that Although he was humble and small, he was so powerful. And we see throughout the Bible that God in his pleasure, in his wisdom, he uses humble and seemingly weak things and people in great ways. In his wisdom, he's decided to work through the humble. And I think there's a danger for us in this world, in Sydney, is to look around at what the world says is wise, to look at the big and successful things around you. Look at the kingdoms that seem powerful like iron or impressive and shiny like bronze and gold. Looking at the strong and influential people instead of looking to the humble stone is Jesus Christ, the man, God, King. Isaiah 42, in speaking about Jesus, says that he will not cry out or shout Or make his voice heard in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed. To the world he was a lowly carpenter. And yet he came to die on a cross for you and for me. Others focused humble Jesus. And some look at him and think, man, this Christianity, this whole idea is foolish. You're trying to tell me that the God became a man Lived a life of service and then was nailed to a cross. And you want me to worship him? And I'm saying, wholeheartedly, with everything I've got, you sure should. Because he did more than die. He rose again. He proved that death, uh, that he proved that he was God by defeating death. Yes, he lived a life of humility. Yes, he seemed weak. But in his resurrection, in rising from the dead, he also showed he was the boss, that he was powerful. In death, he, he crushed sin. He crushed the powers of the world. Sin is where, we've, uh, it is where we've rejected God. Sin is where we say, God, I don't want a relationship with you. I, I don't want you to rule over my life. I want to set up my own kingdom. I want to be the boss. I'm the head, I'm the independent one, I'm going to get the praise for my hard work. That's what I was like. I just wanted all the control for myself. I didn't want to give it to God. And the danger is, if we go to the grave without acknowledging God as king, if we go to the grave without humbling ourselves, if we hold on to our little kingdoms, wanting all the control, listening to our own wisdom. If we don't fear God, we'll be like the kingdoms that we saw in the dream, crushed. You won't get God. You won't be in his kingdom. But he wants you. He wants you so bad that he came and he died for you. He came so that you could have a relationship with him. He came so that you could know him intimately. Will you go to him? Will you humble yourself? And will you praise him? Will you acknowledge that that you weren't made to rule your life? He was. And he will lead you. And he will love you. He's such a good father. To to non-Christians here, can I urge you, don't let this opportunity go past. For tomorrow may come and the distractions of the world may gather around you again. Can I encourage you to challenge Christianity, to ask the hard questions of it? It stood up to hard questions for 2,000 years. Look at Jesus. Look at his wisdom. Look at his humility. And see if it is truly wise to believe and trust in a good and loving and infinitely wise king. To all of you, can I encourage you, when a deadline is approaching and the boss is at your desk, when a hard conversation has to be had, will you act wisely? Will you humbly go before the Lord in prayer, lifting your eyes to the Lord who reigns over all and is with you through all? Will you pray to your God who intimately loves you? And will you humbly go to each other, praying to the Lord together? Will you praise him as you see him at work, as you see that his wisdom is a beautiful, rich thing? Please join me as I pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that in your wisdom, you have revealed yourself to us. In your wisdom, you have used the humble Jesus Christ to save us from our sin and the judgment that we rightly deserve. Please help us, Lord, to lift our eyes to you, to humbly approach you and to praise you, Please help us pray together. Please help us, Lord. We need you. We thank you, Father, for this time where we can sit under your word. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.